The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2016 Twin Cities Project. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. that you guys break up in small groups okay so from about for the next uh, the next 50 minutes or so we'll be me teaching through some stuff and then us having a discussion so let me pray uh, god thank you for summer thank you for nights like this when we can come to a place yeah, fill this this room and uh, together just seek to know you more and to know more of your mission to know more of how the good news of what you intend for this world, how that good news is revealed, uh, and tonight we'll talk about how that's revealed through your local church. Thank you for uh, your church. Thank you for Jesus who came and paid for the church, bought the church by His blood. Now bless us tonight, this time, this discussion, this whole thing is yours. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So how is the gospel revealed in the local church? That sound right? That sound good? Uh, uh, a couple things to look at first. Uh, Look, we should look closer at. So the question is, how is the gospel revealed through the local church? And two things we need to probably figure out. First is, what's the gospel? And then, what's the local church? I'm sure you guys have talked about former. But let me, uh, let me talk, just say a few things here. What we'll do, just an outline, if you guys like outlines, is uh, we'll talk about, number one, what's the gospel? Number two, what's the local church? Number three, what's their connection? The connection between the gospel the local church. And when we start talking about definitions, we'll start with the gospel. The thing that's interesting about these two their definitions is that they need each other. The gospel and the local church uh, depend upon one another if we would understand what they are. Um, when we talk about the gospel, there's really uh, two, two different ways we could be asking the question. Someone says, what is the gospel? Do they mean what is the good news of Christianity? Or do they mean what must a person believe in order to be saved? It's two different questions. One, you could say, is more of a wide-angle lens, and the other is more of a narrow lens, right? So the wide-angle is, what is the good news of Christianity? The narrow, the narrow lens is, what must a person believe in order to be saved? Um, and it's this, I think this wide-angle lens, uh, wide-angle lens for our purposes tonight um, that we should start with um, has to do with when we ask what's the gospel we're asking what is the good that Christianity has for the world what is the good of Christianity what is the good that God intends for the world through Jesus 
And the answer, I think, simply is the supremacy of Jesus. The good of Christianity, the gospel is, in this sense, the reign of Jesus over our lives and eventually over the entire world. So the kingship of Jesus, right? The reign of Jesus. The gospel is the eternal kingdom of Jesus. That is the good that God intends for this world. Telling the gospel is announcing that. It's announcing that Jesus is the one who came and died, was raised from the dead, now reigns over all things as, as Lord of heaven and earth, seated at the Father's right hand. I think that is the gospel in a nutshell. If we were to put it all together, though, this is, this is my shot at, that's kind of the wide-angle lens. What's the good news of Christianity? It's that Jesus is king. He's in charge. Right? That's the wide-angle view. Now, we put that together with the more narrow lens. This is, this is my shot at trying to articulate that. Now, I'll read it here um, just so you hear it, but then we'll, we'll move on. Um, the gospel is the announcement that Jesus died for sinners, that he was raised from the dead, and that he is now enthroned as Lord of all. That's wide Okay, That's wide angle. Now I'll try to get a little more narrow. And that when we repent and believe in Him, we are, by His Spirit, united with Him and brought into fellowship with God as new creatures being fitted for a new world. Read, read it again. This is my attempt to give a, a short but comprehensive definition of the Gospel that includes both the wide-angle wide view and the narrow the gospel is the announcement that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that he was raised from the dead, that he is now enthroned as Lord of all, and that when we repent and believe in him, we are, by a spirit, united with him and brought into fellowship with God as new creatures being fitted for a new world. Okay? That's the long definition for the gospel. Now, the shorthand definition I want to come back to, what is the, the gospel, what is the good news of Christianity? It is the supremacy of Jesus. That was part of that. Now realize, we have to say more. Just know, if we're talking to people, and you know, you, you're thinking, I want to tell the gospel to this person, um, you have to say more than Jesus is king. Part of the message, right? But the kingship of Jesus is not good news unless you happily submit to his kingship. That's Psalm 2, right? Uh, Kiss the son lest he be angry and he perish in the way. Psalm 2, verse 12. So the kingship, the sovereignty, the supremacy of Jesus for some people can be very scary, right? But it is good news, right, if we welcome his ranks. So just, just, just uh, store that for a second. Think the gospel is the supremacy of Jesus. Now, now that we get that, that we hold that, the gospel is the supremacy of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, which is a good thing. How do we think about the local church? What is the local church? All right? Well, it's not just that the gospel is revealed through the local church. It's that there would be no local church if not for the gospel. All right? So this is where, a little maybe different from the past talks, is that, you know, the question, how is the gospel revealed through the local church? It's like, the local church is that, right? The local church is what the gospel creates. Uh, let me read to you, this is my definition for how I define the local church. The local church is a community of Christians. By Christians, I mean little Christ, disciples of Jesus, people who have been transformed by Jesus, who follow Jesus. The local church is a community of Christians 
who live as the on-the-ground expression of the supremacy of Jesus by advancing his gospel in distance and in debt. The local church is a community of Christians who live as the on-the-ground expression of the supremacy of Jesus by advancing his gospel in distance. And that's what the local church is. The local church, by definition, uh, is the primary bearer and promoter of the gospel. Hold, the church holds the gospel, keeps the gospel, protects the gospel, and promotes, propagates, and spreads the gospel, which is the supremacy of Jesus. Okay? The church is that. Let me take three things now. That's the church, the gospel, the church. Now let me tease that out more with the connection between the gospel and the church. What's the connection between the supremacy of Jesus and the church? Right? Three things to say. The first is that, this is just slowly walking through that definition. The first is that Jesus is supreme. Alright? The supremacy of Jesus makes all the difference for the local church. Uh, his supremacy, the supremacy of Jesus, is what makes the church an actual community and not just a club. Alright? I said here in the definition that the local church is a community of Christians. Community is an important word. It's not a club of Christians. It's a community of Christians who live as the on-the-ground expression of His supremacy. Alright? So He makes this community not a club. You guys know the difference? Have you guys ever thought or heard someone talk about the difference between the community and the club? You guys ever heard that? Okay. This, I heard Tim Keller nail this recently, so I, I, I'm kind of borrowing this from him. Um, but a club is a group of people who have one thing in common. Right? And they kind of orient around the one thing. They may get what the club's about. So think uh, a big stamp club. Okay? Uh, think history club. What are some other clubs? What are they? Chess club. Chess club. Okay, what, what else? Spanish club. Mm-hmm. Book club. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sure, it's okay. <laughs> A club is people who are different, have different things, but they, there's just one thing that they kind of make the center and they orient around this thing. But it's one thing. And it's not something that has an all-encompassing part of their It's not an all-encompassing thing in their life, right? The requirement to be part of a club is that you just do that one thing. Fight club, right? You, they have jobs, they have their lives, but they fight. It's the one thing that, that kind of makes the clothes the kind of orient around. A community, on the other hand, is joined together by more permanent bonds, by things that tend to be a bigger deal, by things that require more investment and are more all-encompassing. The truest of communities are joined together by the greatest of bonds, by the one thing that impacts all the others and has a say on everything else. The truest community is when the bond is something or someone that transcends every potential club and is sovereign over every potential club. So it's like this. We're not just talking about your work or your job. We're talking about what affects or impacts the way you think about your work or your job. That uh, We're not talking about what you do for entertainment. We're talking about what determines what you do for entertainment. We're not talking about just your family, but the thing that, that impacts the way you think about 
your family and so forth. You could go on and on. Um, community is oriented around a bond that touches other things, affects other things. Right? Who could ever claim to have a kind of authority that touches everything? Be Jesus. This is where I think Jesus creates the truest of communities. Jesus said that he has, in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth. It was given to him. The Father gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. Which means he is sovereign over everything. He's his. He is sovereign over every affinity. Over every affinity that we would, in, in one sense, orient around. Whether it be chess, or whether it be skydiving, whether it be book club. Whatever the affinity is, Jesus is above that affinity. He's, he's, he's bigger than, he's more fundamental than any affinity that we would want to identify ourselves by. Jesus is the one who ties everything else together. He is the son in our solar system. That's what it means for him to be supreme. And this really is a revolutionary idea. This, this, this is a revolutionary thing to grasp. We just had last night at our congregational meeting, we had one of our members who is a teacher in Southeast Asia was just sharing about some students who she has been telling the gospel to over some time now. And one of the things that she mentioned that her team has, has seen the time they've been in Asia is that of, of the students who are receptive and open to the gospel and want to move forward in discipleship, one of the hardest things to make them understand is that Jesus affects what they think about for a job. Right? Or the person they might marry. Right? Think about this. Imagine for a pretty atheistic country, Southeast Asia, say China, for someone to, someone to come and introduce you to Jesus and say, This is Jesus, and He changes everything in your life. It's not just about how you worship or what you do on Sunday mornings, but it's you won't think about jo your job or what job to take the same way. You won't, you won't just marry anybody anymore, you just don't have any kind of relationship. You just don't go anywhere for entertainment. Like he changes how you do everything. Right? He he, get, he has his hands into every facet of your life. That's a revolutionary thing. Who can do that? Who had? Who else? Who else claims to have that kind of authority? Well, when you meet him, when you, when he comes into your life, everything is different. Nothing stays the same. You don't think about anything the way you thought about it before because. Of who he is. Um, and, and, and I think, on one hand, this could sound, uh, I imagine to some people, over, overwhelming. Right? They have been going through life, doing their own thing, making their own decisions, and then here comes Jesus, and they realize, okay, what, this is what discipleship is. You, you, we, we learn together how to obey all that he commands. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But imagine learning, having no having no category for just learning that oh wait, there's someone who cares about the person I might marry. Oh wait, there's somebody who he cares about which job I take. He cares about where I might relocate. He cares about yeah, 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 yeah. And in one sense, I think this is the good news. This is the part that comforts me in it. Um, because Jesus is that supreme. It means that we are not left to have to figure things out on our own. 
There's nothing that we're stuck with where we have to figure this out ourselves. It all comes back to Him. It all comes back to what does He want? It all comes back to what delights the heart of Jesus. What does Jesus want for my class schedule? What does Jesus want for the internship, for the job, for where I live, for who I married, for this relationship in my life? What does Jesus want? What does Jesus want? I think that helps us out immensely. Otherwise, we're just, we're just grasping for things. We're just trying to figure this out on our own. And the supremacy of Jesus is now there's a better way. It all orients toward Him. Everything that is or could be, for as long as it ever will be, is pointing to Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, the second person of the Holy Trinity through whom all things are made. Jesus is the one who became God with us, God in human flesh, the God-man, the last Adam, the offspring of Abraham, the line of Judah, the prophet like Moses, the root of Jesse, the descendant of David, the suffering servant, the hope of Israel, the Savior of the world. This is Jesus. He has that kind of supremacy. He's in charge. He is the one who reigns. Which means, Christian community is really more about Jesus than it is about the Christians involved. Community sounds so horizontal for us, right? It is. We're community. We're together. Actually, though, it's more about Jesus than it is about us. Christian community is really more about the Jesus who joins us than the Christians who are joined. Because he, he's the one who brings us together. He's the one who does this. Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be doing this. Community, as horizontal as it is, is fundamentally about Jesus. It says something about Him. So that's the first thing. Uh, Jesus is supreme. He has that kind of supremacy. Secondly, Jesus expresses His supremacy. Um, if Jesus is really reigning, if He's really king, if He's really in charge, how is His reign actually offered? What is the tangible expression of His supremacy in the real world? How is the force of Jesus' supremacy felt here? It's a big question. We believe that the King of the universe, seated at the right hand of the Father, is in charge of all things. Now, what does that look like here? How is His kingship, how is His supremacy felt in the real world? And the answer is through His church. The supremacy of Jesus is expressed through His church. If you're Matthew 16, look there for just a second, verse 16. It's no accident in Matthew 16 that immediately after Peter confesses the identity of Jesus, Jesus replies and says something about His church. You guys ever thought about that? Look at verse 16. Jesus, of course, asks, who do people say that I am? Peter says, He knows you are the Christ, the Messiah. The Son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him first, okay, Peter, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. This is not your smarts. This is not your creativity. You didn't know this. The Father in heaven, my Father in heaven, verse 17, has showed you this. And then look at what Jesus says. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it's just a little odd to think about it, okay? The conversation here is about Jesus. Jesus is asking the disciples, because this is the talk, who are people saying that I am? Who am I? What is my identity? Who am I? This is me. Who am I? And Peter says, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. Does the conversation change? Has Jesus now said, okay, we're done with that conversation. Now we're going to move on and talk about something totally unrelated to who I am. Of course not. Okay, you got it. I'm, I'm the Messiah. I am the Son of the living God. And, hey, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not go against her. So the two things that Jesus says about the church, I think are about his supremacy. First, he says, I will build the church. My idea. The beginnings of the church, the beginnings of this community of Christians who live as the underground expression of my supremacy. My idea. I did this. I've, I'm building the church. I'm doing this. Okay. And the second thing he says about it has to do with the church's endurance. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, which is the, the, the image there. The church is on the offensive. Right? It's the it's the gates of hell. Like the, the doors the, to get into hell, the, those doors cannot prevail against the church. That's advancing and coming. The, the church can't be stopped, in other words. That's what he's saying. So Peter says, okay, Jesus, this is who you are. You're, this, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, and I'm going to build my church, and my church is going to last. My church will not fail. My church will continue. The supremacy of Jesus is worked out here through the creation of His church and the continuation of His church. And the only reason the church lasts, the only reason the church is going to be sustained through all these years is because of His supremacy. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 says this, um, The Father has put all things under the feet of Jesus. This is Ephesians 1, all about the supremacy of Jesus. The Father has put all things under the feet of Jesus. And it says in Ephesians 1.22, And He gave Jesus to the church. Right? Which, he, the Father gives Jesus to the church, which means He takes the King of the universe, and He says, okay, now you be the head of the church. Which means, if the King of the universe is the head of the church, we're going to be okay. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. The head of the church is the King of the of the universe, which means we got a good shot. That's an implication here. That's an implication. The, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The king of the universe runs this thing. We're going to be okay. That's the second. The third thing is Jesus expresses his supremacy on the ground. On the ground is another way to highlight the local nature of how Jesus expresses his supremacy. There are two ways to think about the church. Uh, the first, you guys have probably heard this before, the first is the church universal. The second is the church local. So universal church is like capital C church. Um, this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1-2 when he says that all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The, the capital C universal church is made up of all Christians across the entire world, across all of history. All right? Every single born-again individual that's ever lived, wherever they're from, whenever they're from. Right? That's the church universal. But then that church universal has local expressions of herself spread throughout the world in different places and at different times. That's the local church. Right? The local church is, is an expression of that universal church, and the local church always happens, has always happened, will always happen. In place and in time. 
The time and place element has always been important. Let me read this because this is a little funky. I've written on this before, so I'm going to read this part, all right? And uh, just because I, I, I can, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm a writer, not a speaker. Uh, but <laughs> this is my, this is my, my chance to try to, to, to try this out on you guys, okay? Uh, here we go. The time and place element has always been an important, has always been important, even uh, long before interstate highways and information, interstate freeways and information highways have shrunk our modern landscape and discombobulated our sense of geographical belonging. So this is a big thing right now. If you guys are familiar with with hipster culture and the subculture that is hipster culture, one of the things that hipster culture, this is, I'm, I'm breaking from it, I won't read it, I'll just talk. Uh, one of the things that hipster culture has, has been a, a, a reaction to is kind of being this discombobulation from, from like geographical belonging. That's why a lot of times associated with hipster culture are like handcrafted goods and microbreweries and a lot of like locale, right? Like a lot of stuff that has geography and place and stuff like that. It's because uh, a lot of popular culture, you know, ha it, and, and the internet and so much of what makes the day we live in amazing has also in some sense lifted us off of the ground. And we're all kind of out here, right? We're, that, that's what makes, I think, Pokemon Go a, a pretty phenomenal thing because it's tried to blend those things, see? And it's so effective, I think it says something to us. In one sense, we want to be connected, but then in another sense, we want to be here. And so I think that technology is trying to blend those things. And a lot of other things are trying to do the same thing. But, um, but there's a sense of which we have been lifted off the ground, and I, I think it, it it doesn't fit right. It's such a unique thing in the history of human, humankind that we live this way. And we all kind of know that we all know that place and location matters. Th those things matter. And the book of Acts shows us that. And I think the reason why place and location matters um, is because it, it helps us understand that, that the gospel, Jesus, is not, I'm going to read again, excuse me, is not an ideological movement for abstract, amorphous peoples, but it's good news proclaimed to real people with real stories and backgrounds and cultures. Uh, the gospel is not a blog post you can click away from at any point in time. Right? It's not something. It's not. It's not a hyperlink. That, <laughs> that's not the gospel. The gospel is news. It's an announcement proclaimed to real people in a real place, in real time, with real backgrounds and real issues and real junk. That's what the gospel is, what Jesus is. And so location, uh, concreteness, stuff that we can get our hands on, that matters. That matters to us. It matters for the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus became God with us here on earth as the God-man. And that is glorious enough. And then there's this whole extra layer of wonder in that Jesus is God with us here in the particulars. Jesus is God with us here on the same road I drive every day to get you to Starbucks at 36 and 30. He's the same. He, he, he's God with us uh, down that same flight of stairs I walk every morning with a cup of coffee in my hand. He's God with us in the living room I just sat in two days ago with members in my church who are hurting and crying and begging God to intervene in a very hard relationship. 
He's, he's not, he's God with us. And he's not just God with us in some type of, you know, here, God, here, he's here. He's with us in the, the nitty-gritty contours and particulars of our life. And you need to think that way. You need to think that way. Bring this down. Bring, understand that he matters in all those little teeny things that we, we see and experience and feel and touch and smell all day long. The, the supremacy of Jesus is expressed not just in the church invisible, but, but here in the touchable, smellable, hearable world where we each live. And Jesus expresses his supremacy in this touchable, smellable, hearable world by his touchable, smellable, hearable assemblies of people who worship him, who serve one another, and who make it known. Right? That's the church. So, Jesus is supreme. It's the supremacy that's expressed, right? It's the supremacy that he wants to make known, and he makes that, uh, that supremacy known in the nitty gritty stuff of this world. He does have to do that's what the church is. The church is the is the showcase of his supremacy. The church is the showcase of his of his kingship, which means in that sense, the church is the kingdom of God in this world. That's the gospel. They kind of tied together for you. The gospel is the king kingship of Jesus. The church is that kingdom lived out in this world. So um, I have some discussion questions. Are you guys gonna do those in the small group time or? Start here if you want. Or... Well, I mean that that's that's just kind of the content I wanted to lay out there, and I have these notes I can send you guys if you wanna if you wanna read through that another time. But I want to just hear from you guys. How does that land? What is that? Any questions came up? Anything that you want to press into a little bit more? We have some time here to. I like having I like discussions. Yeah. Uh, just kind of curious. Um, I mean, so you just kind of said the church is community of believers. Um, what, what's the importance of having membership in the church? Yeah, I can. Well, this is fresh for me because we just had last night uh, a congregational meeting. We welcomed 20, 40 members. Um, it gets into the mission of the church. One of the things I did to expound upon here is I, I define the church as the on the ground expression of the supremacy of Jesus by advancing his gospel in distance and in depth. And that's where I would get into church planning, too, if we wanted to talk about about that. But because I think the mission of the church is discipleship, it's making disciples. Which I see you say disciple is a worshiper, a servant, and missionary. Right? We want to worship Jesus, we want to serve like Jesus, we want to be a missionary with Jesus. That's what discipleship is. We want to become that. We want to make more of those. Uh, that happens, I mean, irreducibly in a relational context. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is people together trying to follow Jesus. So the mission of the church, which is make disciples, has to happen in relational context, right? Now the question is, what type of relational context is most conducive to really growing in grace, really becoming more like Jesus? And I'd say the context to have a high level of commitment and a high level of trust. That is covenant membership. I think covenant membership is where you have disciples together following Jesus in a context of, hey, I'm committed to you, and you can trust me. So what well, I tell people, I just I didn't even talk to Sarah yesterday. Did I said this yesterday. This yep, is my little phone. pitch. This is my covenant membership pitch here. <laughs> you should, if you remember, you should, you should say it. Um. Well, you were just telling me that like when you become a member, nothing really changes exactly in like the 
specific details of your commitment to the church, but it's just more official and you know, like, I'm committed to you and you're committed to me and we're committed to seeing each other become more like Christ. Yeah, yeah. So we do a covenant when we sign a covenant and we affirm a covenant. But in, in essence, what we're saying, the subtext of, of covenant membership is, like last night when Sarah affirmed the covenant, and she's saying in essence to, to all the members of cities, hey, I'm not just for my own sanctification. I'm for your sanctification. I, I just don't want me to become more like Jesus. I want you to become, I want all of you to become more like Jesus. And then everyone else is saying to her, hey, we just don't want to become like Jesus ourselves. We want you to become more like Jesus too. And so you have this beautiful mutuality of you have people together following Jesus, each wanting the other to become more like Jesus. That's, that's I think, covenant membership. So it's a relational environment with a high level of trust, a high level of commitment. I think that's where the gospel begins to take root. And part of that, I mentioned this too, is <clears throat> what's required for that to happen is a level of vulnerability and honesty that I think is uncommon in any other community on the planet. Because if we really want the gospel to affect us and change us, we have to be open about where we are. We have to tell people where we live. We have to tell people our struggles. That's the only way the gospel can be spoken into where we are, to where we are. And we should expect people to be that way to us. That's the that's sort of thing. You have to... If, and I tell people this, when you come to cities, you can bring your sin to cities, for sure. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Right? I didn't come for those who are well, I came for those who are sick. So you can, if you're sick, come to our church. I mean, I'm not trying to recruit you for our church, Nick, sorry. I'm just saying, in general, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> any church, any church, Hope, Bethlehem, Cities, Antioch, Trinity City, uh, City Life. Uh, there's a lot of great churches in the cities. Um, any of these churches, Bring your sins to these churches. Jesus came for sinners. But don't bring hidden sins. Don't bring harbored, unconfessed sin. Don't do that. Because you're not going to change. You're not going to be changed. You're not going to be helped. Right? So that, that's my pitch for coming. That's a great. I mean, I love that topic. So that's right. Uh, yeah, Dan. Can you back off that? Yeah. I think you know, the foundation you laid was really helpful. Maybe more speaking into like the practical nature of mostly juniors and seniors in the Twin Cities Project, a couple handful of sophomores. Yeah. What would, what would you say to someone who's maybe kind of going to Bethlehem a little bit, maybe they hear about cities or they hear about hope, you know, how would you speak into someone's, you know, church membership while they're still in school? And then maybe the unknown of, I'm not sure where God's going to call me. A lot of our students end up staying in Minneapolis, some, some, go, some go abroad. Would you join a church if you're going to be there for, for six months or a year? Or, how does that relate to small group life then, too? How do you really kind of plug into a deeper community? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I could tell you folks who, I mean, so my sense is that, yeah, you should plug in as soon as you can. Um, and there's some churches who will do that. We're small, so Bethlehem is one, Cities is one. Hope is a little bit different how they do membership because they have so many college students. It's a little more transient as far as the influx of students. But, I mean, an example would be Alex Bates. You guys know Alex? Mm -hmm. So he, he uh, it's funny, he just joined, I think, in April at our congregational meeting. And last night, I announced that he's moving. <laughs> he's, he's moving to Iowa for school. Um, so he, he was part of CO, part of, at St. Thomas, part of our, our church, and uh, part of our community. And he affirmed the covenant, right? Connor, Connor you're, you're going to become a member. Uh, Kirsten, Zach, um, Sarah, um, I miss anybody? Yeah, Andrew, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah. so, so these, these are folks who have moved forward to membership. And one thing that it, that it does 
even if even if you know you're going to move, um, you, you kind of in one sense you bring other people into where you are. We, you know, my family, we, we joined the church right before we moved here because we felt like we, we wanted to have people who were kind of once it's holding the rope. And that's what you guys need rope holders because you, you're at a place right now in your life where you're going to be moving from work school or jobs. So just having people who can be a backstop and can, can help you. I, I'd encourage you to get, in, get involved with the church. And excuse me, one thing it means for, for Alex is that part of our membership covenant is that when you remove yourself from this place, you find you find a like-minded church. And so we're committed now with Alex to help him find a church in Iowa that's going to be a good church for him. Same thing for Ivy, uh, uh, Clayton and Ivy Hutchings. They just moved to Louisville for school. And, and Clayton just emailed me today. He said, hey, I found a church, Manual Baptist. This is, And so I'm kind of helping hand him off. That, that's my covenant obligation to him, is to help him find a local church. Same thing for all the... the I mentioned several people are relocating. I mentioned last night. And we say their names in our meeting, and we say, hey, we're committed to helping them find a local church for their meeting. This is part of our, part of our commitment to them. So yeah, I, I would encourage, for that, for that purpose, I'm just kind of having a rope holder or something that has your back. I think it's a great thing to be part of the church. Yeah? Some of my friends in college, they do this thing where one church is a youth group, one church they volunteer, and one church they go to just because it like, that's where they've been like, asked to help out. So is that a bad thing? Should I not encourage them to do it all at once, even though like, they found friends on these friends? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. And there, there are so many, I mean, it's hard to say in a kind of a blanket answer. In general, because there are always exceptions to things, you know, if, if certain situations are, you know, how. In, in general, um, I'd say if you can get plugged into one church, do that. Um, and I'm saying that as when I was in college, uh, I went to a church on Wednesday nights, mm-hmm. different than I went to on yeah. Sunday mornings, because they had a they had a program on Sunday night that the other church I went to was like 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So rather than commuting there during the week, I went to this other church that was five minutes away. They had like a class on Wednesdays I went to. Um, so again, it, yeah. it, it made sense for me at that time, but um, you can be plugged into one place, that's, that's ideal, but I understand it's not always. But yeah, that's a good practical question. But. Yeah, what else? I mean, you've got some, some time. Anything related to that? I, I, that was kind of a, just all that I said. Maybe there's one more question. So. For the students that are kind of graduating, maybe just getting into a, a local church as, as a pastor and, you know, with a, the unique kind of nature or training of, of having some level of discipleship, being involved with CEO, where could you see TCP alumni, how could they be serving the church, where, where are their needs? Yeah, I mean, churches are different. I can speak of kind of the situation we have at cities right now. Um, you know, we're set up in a lot, very similar to how CO is set up in terms of kind of how we do our discipleship process and in terms of we have, we call them community groups, which is a wider group, anywhere from 10 to 20 people. And then we have, we call them live groups, which are like smaller groups. Well, what's the language you guys use at CO? Discipleship groups, D groups. D groups, yeah. yeah. Um, and then the wider gathering you have for just like local movements on the campus. Okay, yeah, I like that. Um, so we, we kind of like, and that's, that's, not a, that's not a CO thing or a city thing, that's really, I mean, uh, Robert Coleman wrote a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is, that's, that's the Jesus way of evangelism. Jesus preached to crowds, he had his 12 disciples, and he had his Peter, James, and John. So this is kind of like big, big context, smaller context, and then smaller context. We kind of have that rhythm in the cities. Um, and because of that, uh, we, we need to reprodu- keep reproducing that, 
those community groups, right, as part of our discipleship process, which means we need leaders to lead those groups. We need people who can help start new groups. And so I think um, people who have come through CO, we have a lot of them in our church. Years ago, in 2003, uh, I mean, two of our pastors, excuse me, three of our pastors, maybe four of our pastors were in, were in campus outreach. And one of the things that's so helpful about that is they just get relational discipleship. So, some people, this is really hard, we had a meeting a few weeks ago. Um, we have this thing we just teach through the mission division of our church. And there was a gentleman who we were talking about what are some of the challenges for the local church and for discipleship. And he said, you know, one of the, one of the, the strengths of a church like this is also one of its greatest challenges. And he said is that relationships are so important, right? Which means uh, for him, he, he, he just was honest, I'm not a very relational person. He said, my sanctification for the past decade has pretty much just been me and my Bible, and I'm okay with that. I don't really like people. <laughs> I don't really like talking to people. I don't really, you know, and so in one sense, there's a, there's a comfort level. There's, there's a, um, a, lear, a learner's curve. There's, a, there's a, a big step you have to take in coming to a place where you're okay with talking to people. And at Cities, we have people right now in our church who are not great at that, and we're not rushing them into that. There's space, there's a process for you to take time and to ease into those things. But it is, it is a challenge. So um, we, we need people at our church, and we have them, who, who get relationship, who can kind of like start momentum. If you had a lot of people who was, if it was, if relational discipleship was new to everyone, it would take a really long time to get it going. But because there's such a relational discipleship DNA, um, it really has been a blessing to our church. And a lot of that's because of campus outreach. So um, I'd say uh, being involved in small group ministry, even at Bethlehem, you mean, uh, yeah, the more people who can be involved in small group ministry who understand relational discipleship, I feel like it just has a ripple effect in our church. So that's a good, good question. Yeah, I guess that's more time. Yeah. So. Just given the amount of churches you'll see just even driving down the street, um, where does the church and where, where do they decide in planting a church versus trying to partner with another church across the city versus maybe just becoming into one? I mean, why, yeah. why is it that there's so many plants now? Yeah, perfect, perfect question. Because I wanted to talk about church planting, and I wanted to talk about church planting in terms of how I think it's at least an implication of what I think the church is. The church is the on-the-ground expression of the supremacy of Jesus by advancing his gospel, advancing his gospel in distance and in depth. So the way that the church expresses the supremacy of Jesus is by telling of his supremacy, by telling the good news of Jesus. And we say by distance, in distance and in depth, um, which means in the Great Commission, Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And we think that baptizing and teaching really forms two different ways that discipleship happens. One is we say in distance, and the other is in depth. So when Jesus says, go make disciples, baptizing, he means go far and wide. Cross the oceans, cross the street, cross the hall in your, in your office. Take the gospel to people. Invite people to come know Jesus. Right? That's, what, that's what he does. Okay? That's discipleship in distance, outreach, right? Then you have discipleship in depth. Jesus says, and once you take the gospel far and wide, people believe, and you baptize them, then teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, right? Which is, we want our entire lives to come.
come under the Lordship of Jesus. We want all that we are, all that we do, to be submitted to, gladly following Jesus in supremacy. All right, and that's discipleship and death. So discipleship in business, discipleship in death. We have to do both, right? We say conversion, counsel. I'm right? saying multiplying, mature. A bunch of different ways we, we try to articulate. We think the two parts, outreach and reach, you know, whatever you want to say. Now, one of the best ways that that discipleship mission is supported is through reproduction, not centralization. Attached to, this is getting a little bit nerdy here, sorry, I have a better way to say that. Uh, one of the best ways to reproduce discipleship in distance and in depth is to plant new churches. Because when you plant new churches, you are unmistakably advancing the gospel and you are promoting what we call manageable membership. Right? So uh, rather than the church keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, which over time begins to really slow down. I mean, this is, there's just data on this. The most effective evangelism strategy in the world is reproduction. It's plenty more churches. It's not by church getting, keep, keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's by the church reproducing, right? And so, because we want to advance the gospel in distance, rather than us get really big, we think we do that better by starting new churches, right? Now, we want to advance, we also want to advance the gospel in distance. We want the gospel to come to bear on our lives. We want to do member care. We want our members to be sanctified and become more like Jesus. Well, also, that doesn't happen when a church keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Because the bigger it gets, you begin to lose that relational discipleship DNA that's so important for discipleship, right? And so we think that rather than get really, really big, the way that you protect discipleship in, in, in depth is by multiplying, right? So rather than the church be, rather than you have a church with 1,000 people, it's better to have five churches of 200 people because we think that makes discipleship in distance more effective and discipleship. So does that make sense? I should, should draw. I have all these pictures, all, all kinds of pictures drawn up. So what's your response to the main church movement? They noticed, well, three years ago, I was really involved in the issues of people at church and kind of left. Some yeah. of the things of what you're talking about, where I'm like, I'm not sure this is the most effective way. But it seems like that's a new way in which people are coming in in massive numbers to church and thinking, this is the gospel, this is enough. Yeah. That sounds like your argument. Well, so, I mean, the reason that I, we, we think through this this way is because we're a church plant. So one of the things of being a church plant is you get to you say, hey, what do we think is the most effective, most reproducible way to do this? Um, that's not to say that other other places are not effective. Um, I I respect churches that have are bigger and have more resources. So that's usually what it means. So right now I have a guy on my street, a neighbor who I love. I've, I've shared the gospel more clearly with him than anyone I have, anyone else the last 10 years. Four conversations of just very clear gospel, and he's a recovering alcoholic. He goes to Eagle Brook because they have a, a program for alcoholics. That's amazing. Our churches in cannot we don't have the resources. We, we, we can't do that. And so uh, I, I appreciate Eagle Brook. I appreciate churches that have resources to serve God. Also, they have a kids program. He's got he's got kids who would be bored out of their mind. We just don't. We just don't have the stuff. We don't have. So uh, I think I think gospel churches of any kind are great. And we need more of them. Sure. Yeah. So one last question: Where do you draw the line between a church being a secret from the church and then the need for death within the church? Is there a line that should be drawn or not? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's a good question. Um, so the question is: uh, Some churches 
can tend to be the word seeker friendly, whereas they, begin, they, they pander or really cater toward people who are very new to Christianity. Um, how do you do that? They're, they're doing that, and you have a church that's a little bit more, uh, um, they, they're more for mature Christians, they speak a little bit more uh, in ways, they're really trying, more of an educational type of church. So we would, the way we talked about it is you have an out, outreach church and an education type church. Um, Christian education or Christian outreach. Um, and I think you need both, right? And you just have to figure out how to do your services. We think in, in 1 Corinthians 11, the goal for non-Christians in a church service is that it be intelligible, but not necessarily completely understandable, right? That's in, you know, when Paul talks about tongues, he says, you know, if you speak in tongues and no one interprets, then if an outsider comes to your, to your service, he's going to think these people are morons, you know? But if, if, if there's prophecy, if people are building up one another, they're going to come and say, oh man, God's in line. It's an amazing, amazing session. And so our goal at Cities is, and I think Bethlehem does this really well too, is not, is not to cater to non-Christians, but it's to be intelligent. So we're speaking English. We're speaking in ways, how would you say that? Does that sound right? Yeah. Speaking in ways that people can understand. Yeah. I mean, defining big words for people, like yeah. assuming that people are coming in with no knowledge and not, not shying away from, from using theological terms, but explaining them in a way where people can understand them and sharing, yeah. sharing stories. I mean, yeah. I feel like painting stories and then weaving in kind of, you know, gospel nuggets, Bible stories, gospel nuggets, Bible stories, just kind of rotating through that. Yeah, the, way, the thing that we do, the three things that I try to do at Cities is um, as far as trying to be intelligible, that's the goal, trying to be intelligible is, I say first that we, we preach to unbelief, not to unbelievers. And so it's rather than in a sermon, in a sermon say, now for you unbelievers, or to an unbeliever I would say, instead, we just address unbelief in the room. Because guess what? Christians also struggle with unbelief. And so a lot of times the way I try to do that is I do comparative religion. So rather than say, okay, this section of the sermon is for unbelievers. I'll just say, and this is what makes Christianity really unique. Nothing's quite like it. You know, Islam just says this, but Christianity says this. So I'm trying to address not the unbeliever, but unbelief, because we all struggle with unbelief. The second thing I do is I, I preach the gospel straight, um, which is it's understanding there really is not. In some way, there is when we when we do things like communion. There's 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 things where we realize you're Christian or not Christian. But we should never have this mentality or a culture where it's us versus them or us and them, right? Because it's not just unbelievers who need the gospel. Christians need the gospel. And so we say we preach the gospel straight, which means you're getting the gospel. You're not getting, okay, for you Christians, this the gospel means this. Okay, for you, for you non-Christians, this is what the gospel means. No, we just preach the gospel straight. The gospel is that Jesus came and died for us because there was no other way we could get to God. We don't have what it takes. Everything else in the world is performance. You do this to get to God. You gotta perform, you gotta show up. It's all about what you do. The gospel says, no, you can't do enough. You can't be good enough. You can't perform well enough. God loves you anyway. He loves you so much that He came here in your place. Jesus came in your place, died for you to bring you back to the Father. So that's that's gospel for everybody, Christian or non-Christian. So we preach the gospel. The third thing we do is we say, say a little more in less time. Um, which means by saying a little more is what Nick said. Is, and we got to get better at this because it's hard. It's hard to do this. But stuff like, rather than, hey, turn to Colossians. It's, hey, uh, 
If you can, grab a Bible or your phone or look with a friend. We're going to be in the book of Colossians. Colossians in the New Testament is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Colossae. Just, so you're saying a little bit more. You say a little more less, which means we try to preach 30-minute or less sermons in cities. Um, because we think it's hard for anyone to sit through a 50-minute sermon, really hard for a non-Christian or someone new to Christianity to sit through a 45-50-minute sermon. So we, those are things we, we preach to the unbelief, not the unbeliever. Um, we preach the gospel straight, and we say a little bit more in less time. Those are the three things we try to, try to do. To be intelligent, not to cater, but to be intelligent. That's part of that line where they've had enough, but they go for more as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, we miss this in some way. We hit a foul ball every Sunday. Yeah. I get emails, people, oh, we start our services or two. You know, right. We want people to bring. And the other thing that we, we this is Steve Trackler's helping with this. Steve Trackler's pastor at Hope Community. I meet with Steve once a month. Like, we get lunch once a month. He's a mentor for me. We've known him for about a year and a half now. It's, it's amazing. But um, <clears throat> he always. He wants his services to be one of those things where he doesn't have to say to people, hey, bring your non-Christian friends. But he wants the service to be set up in such a way that that Christians in there are saying, ah, I wish so-and-so were here. Ah, I wish, I wish my co-worker could have heard that. And, uh, I, and, and the one, one thing he said about that is the reason he's never in the history of hope told people, hey, bring your, bring your friends next week or bring your non-Christian friends next week. As he said, you ever been to a restaurant and after you had your meal, you're walking out? And the waiter says, "Hey, come back, come back next week and bring bring all your friends. You've never been here before." He's like, "No, you just want the, the food and the service. You just want it to be so good and so compelling that while you're eating in the restaurant, you think, oh, I want to bring my buddy. You know, that's that sort of thing. Like if it's compelling and rich enough, um, then let that be what people want to come to. Not not you say, hey, bring your so, and that corrected me because I'm always, hey, bring people, you know. But uh, it's more of, and Keller says, preach to the people who, who you want to be there. So think about people who you want to be there and, and want your people who want them to be there. So that's a great question. Yeah. Do you have like a, a few big things that God has done that have been really encouraging since the start of cities um, that you feel like, yeah, that, that was really encouraging? Yeah, um, man, a ton. We've, we've seen, uh, and this, I mean, and this is a great way to close it because this is the local church, man. It's like God does stuff in the local church. It's where stuff happens. You know, people who who have str- struggle with intense depression, God meets them there, and and He gives them comfort, and they come out. You know, that's an amazing thing. Um, a couple people who um, have been born again in the last six months who were not Christians. One guy who was brand new to Christianity in December, he and I started meeting, and he's come to faith. He's been, we baptized him in May. Um, <clears throat> we've seen uh, um, sin in relationships that would, in pretty much most cases, end a relationship, not end a relationship. And there's hope, and there's restoration in process. There's all kinds of ways, and it happens with people following Jesus in relationships is what the local church is about. So I think if we had, if we looked around, we had eyes to see, we see God working all around us in the local church. That's what the local church is. I mean, you know, even this happening right now, that there's people on a, on a Thursday night in downtown Minneapolis talking about the local church. Like, 
God's working in love. He's doing something. He's always doing something. And I, I think because we live in an age of, of uh, such high adrenaline and activism, I think a lot of times um, we, we think that it has to be all kind of bells and whistles, you know, and all the excitement types of. But actually, I, I want to learn how to have eyes for the real simple, simple stuff that God does and, uh, and be encouraged by that. Um, so that's one thing that we're trying, I'm trying to recover in myself is, is just seeing his hand in really, really simple things um, and, uh, and thanking him for it because he's in those things. And that's, that's the church. That's what the church does. So, well, it's 8 o'clock now. I think we're out of time. But that's great. I, uh, I just texted everyone the, the questions. Okay. Any, any thoughts on, on those as we kind of split? Well, we do discussion questions in our life groups uh, every other week at Cities. And um, uh, not all our groups do them, but um, I like questions. I like discussion questions. So I'd say when I say for those questions, I'll say for these. Let these kind of be starter questions for you. Um, you know how it is in discussion. They kind of get you kind of get your wheels turning, and then like something else will come up. Or just these are kind of like starter questions. Don't don't just okay. Here's this first one. What do you say? Okay. Here's the second one. Just kind of let it kind of let it you know get get the ball rolling, and then you guys take them and change them and throw more in or, or drop them if they don't sound right or yeah. So yeah. So sharp sharp right. Yeah. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for Jesus who came and who lived in our place, who walked this earth in our shoes, experienced everything that we've experienced, tempted in every way that we've been tempted yet. He didn't sin. He never broke faithfulness. He, he never turned from you. He never rebelled against you. And everything he endured, faithful, obedient, loving you above all things. We've not done that. We have failed in so many ways. We have turned against you in so many ways. And all the sin that we've committed, all the wrath that we deserve from you because of our sin, Jesus, as perfect as it was, he took all that sin, all that guilt, all that shame, took it. He went to the cross, and there in our place, he suffered for us. He bore the punishment we deserve. He was dead, he was buried, and then on the third day, he was risen, victorious no longer held by death, no longer held by the enemy. He ascended and is now seated at your right hand and he's king. We know he's king. We know he rules over all. And we know he's coming again. And we thank you for that. We want to know more of this rule in our lives, which is why we pray, why he taught us to pray. Uh, Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done. We want that to happen in our lives. We want it to happen in our churches. We want that to happen in this campus ministry. So do that, we ask. And uh, bless this discussion tonight. Now for your glory. Work, we pray in these small things. Work in these small things for your glory. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.